Have you ever wondered how deep tech companies actually start? Well, we were too. So in this podcast, we'll be interviewing scientists and entrepreneurs that have taken their ideas out of the lab and turned them into startups. I'm Antonia. And I'm Christina. And this is Startup the Science. Hello there. And welcome back to another episode of Startup the Science. Today, we have an expert episode for you with Dr. Maria Sano from High Tech Kundefons, which from this point on, I will call HTGF because it's so much easier to pronounce that way. HTGF is a venture capital investment firm based here in Germany, and they're an early stage seed investor of high-tech startups, which is why they're so relevant for us in our network. I was trying to remember how we got introduced to Marie, but I honestly, I can't remember, but I remember that we invited her and she accepted um, to be part of our investors workshop as the venture capitalist representative. And I think from that point on, we just knew that Marie had to be part <laughs> of every investor's day from here on out. And we also invite her to be on our juries for our programs as well. And there's a really good reason for that. She is a well of knowledge, not just in the investment world, but also in the technical and the scientific world. She'll explain more about her background in this episode. If you ever wanted to get inside the mind of an investment manager, this is definitely the episode for you. Marie is just such a pleasure to talk to and... Uh, it was just a matter of time before we got her on this podcast, and we're so glad she made the time to talk with us. So here's our conversation with Marie. Enjoy. Hi, Marie, and welcome to Start of the Science. It's great to have you with us today. Hi, Antonia. Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure being here today. We're very glad to have you. We anyway talk to you all the time, so we thought it would be a really nice thing for our Start of the Science audience to also get to know you. So let's start off with that with a brief introduction. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So. Um, my name is Marie. I'm originally from Japan. My background is in chemistry. So a little bit about my um, academic background. I did my bachelor's in chemistry, master's in material science, then PhD in nanochemistry, uh, made the leap. So um, had an existential crisis a little bit after my, my PhD, wanted to do something completely different, um, did an MBA and then came to the venture capital scene after that. A little about me. So beyond that academic part, um, I'm a big foodie and um, I like to travel <laughs> and eat while I'm traveling. Oh, that's nice. It's nice when people are also open to talking about themselves as uh, people and not just professional background wise. So that's nice. Um, good. So we, we usually come in contact with you when we have interesting startups that need investors or investor advice. And so that's what we wanted to talk to you about today, um, to get some of your wisdom from an investor's perspective, what should startups uh, be looking to do better or what should they stop doing altogether if they're they're doing it now. So as an investor, we know you receive hundreds of pitches a year. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about um, your work as well. And then what are the top three things that you're looking for when you're evaluating a startup? What are You get the deck. What are the top three things? That would be on your mind. So yeah, when we receive, of course, like you said, we receive hundreds and hundreds of pitch decks. And of course, um, it's not a light matter to go through them and sort of, you know, sort out what is good or what needs to be improved on. Because honestly, there are no bad, bad companies. It's just, you know, some or the other companies that need a little bit of polishing, right? 
Well, since I work for high-tech Gründerfonds, just a little bit of a background, we our focus is in very high-tech startups. So young, innovative, high-tech startups. So obviously different investors are going to different focus. So my answers are kind of based on our DNA and what we do. So great pitch decks. Well, first of all, you know, they have a very clear, unique selling point or USP that they can bring across very simply in a couple of sentences. That's a no brainer to understand. And this unique selling point and this solution, this, sorry, this unique selling point of this solution is able to solve a re- big problem. And that's a great pain for the users. And by implementing the solution, obviously, it brings a large benefit to whoever implements it. Other than that, obviously, if you're lurking at very early stage teams, um, what do you have? You have have the team and then you have intellectual property most of the time. So I'd like to see the intellectual property is sufficiently protected. So it doesn't need to be patented. It can be based on know-how. It can be based on any trademark, I don't know, any way, shape or form that you want to protect the technology, but just that is suitably protected. Other than that, I already said a great team. So when we do go further with a startup, we do invite them for a pitch or for a reason. And that's because we want to get to know them, the team as a team personally, to see how they react under pressure, to see how they answer questions. And of course, you'd like to see enthusiasm, grit, you know, teams that um, are self-reflective and, you know, have the push, you know, have that spark that it takes. Right. So to, to sort of sum it up, three things would be very clear USP, what is it that they're actually doing and what is the problem they're solving? And then how are they protecting their IP? And last but not least, who's in their team and what are the skills that they're all bringing to the table? Exactly. Do you see a lot of pitches that don't have that, that maybe don't mention the team at all or forget to talk about IP? Or is this a common problem or do most pitches to be all right. I mean, most pitches do. I mean, if there's points missing, obviously, we will ask about it and sort of probe that, okay, if they accidentally forgot it in the pitch, of course, in the Q&A session, obviously, this is something we ask and we will not overlook. However, I think this is very a specific challenge we see in the high tech area is, I call it a solution looking for a problem or are teams with an extremely strong tech push. And what I mean by this is, um, well, I'm a, I used to be a scientist myself in my former life. And you sort of have this thinking that if the science is good and if the technology is better than what existed before, it must find customers because it's technologically better. But the market does not function like this. And it's usually the fact that, well, I, I like to make an analogy with, uh, with a mosquito swatter or a fly swatter, you don't need a hammer if it's sufficient to have a cheap plastic thingy to swat it. And that's usually the case that, you know, a lot of teams don't talk to the client early enough or don't go early enough into the market to figure out what exactly is that thing the market is looking for. And if your machine has 60% efficiency, and that's good enough. You don't need to go to 100%. So, you know, so, sort of that give and take and sort of exchange with the market is something that's definitely uh, lacking in a lot of teams. And, and that actually leads me to my to my next question, which is going to be about common mistakes or things that you see done wrong, for lack of a better word. Um, would that be one of the top things that many startups don't do research at an early enough stage for them to identify what's their market fit? How good does their application need to be? And what are other common mistakes that you see? Um, IP strategy is a big one. So like I said, you don't 
need to patent, sorry, patent strategy and IP strategy. You don't need to patent if you don't need it. But most of the time in chemistry and material science, you're going to have to patent. And it starts off with the licensing contract you have for the university or research institution, because very rarely do we have startups that already own the patents. And if those conditions, I mean, if you have a very experienced tech transfer office, which is, you know, the case in Germany, most of the time, then it's not an issue. But if you have terms in there that are not mark conform, then obviously an investor who's going to come in later on is going to look at those terms and say, well, this affects my investment as well. And I'm not okay with these terms. Other than that, you know, in which country and how to patent it, how to patent the technology, especially if it's a complex technology you're talking about is, is not trivial. You need you cannot do it yourself. You most likely need a very experienced IP lawyer in order to structure it so that the core of your of your startup is protected and optimally protected. So if you were a scientist, I mean, you are a scientist, but if you were a scientist starting a company, uh, what would be the first things you would do? Would you, at a very early stage, already go to a lawyer to see what are the conditions in which you could transfer your IP out of the university in which you're starting? Would you, I don't know, go speak to a consultant to figure out your best market fit? Or what would be the first steps you take as an early stage scientific startup? Hopefully, I will be in one of the universities, which has a pretty good tech transfer office. So I would definitely go there to ask for help uh, with patenting. So usually the university patents the patents at first. So to see, okay, so if that's the case, they have an IP lawyer. Okay, so let, let's see how we can protect it, get professional help in that regard. Um, aspect number one. Aspect number two, we were talking about uh, companies that are very tech push, right? Then the next thing I would do is there's many things you can do with market research and finding things about the market that you don't need an expert for. I would actually go out there try to even cold call or use my network to get in contact with future clients, show them the minimal viable product, well knowing it's not perfect, it's not 100%, it's maybe 70% complete, 60% complete, but try to get first feedback on the market to see what are they looking for and which aspect of this product do I need to develop further. And it could be that the feedback is completely different than I've only developed at 60% and I can start developing it in a parallel, in a different direction. Right. And only after these steps, would you then go and find investors that might be interested in the product, not not beforehand? Or would you do all these things in parallel? I would do all these things in parallel. I mean, uh, well, part of the thing is that, you know, we sort of see this as also an aspect of our job because we're early stage investors. I mean, we do go to these um, get to know your investor days, uh, for lack of a better word, at universities. Uh, we are at startup competitions, but we do go one step earlier. And if there is a promising team that wants to contact us and say, hey, look, uh, we're extremely early, but we want early you know, early feedback. This is something we, we welcome, obviously. So obviously you've worked with a lot of startups so far, some of them more successful than others. Can you give us an example of one success story, one that you're really proud of, that you think, okay, these guys have done really well and I want to tell everyone about them. It doesn't have to be an email startup like Christina is suggesting by head nodding. It can be any startup. Well, let's just say that I, I love, you know, I love my portfolio and I'm very attached to my, the portfolio that I have. Um, the recent success story, I have to say, is uh, Kumovis. So Kumovis is a 3D printing company in implants. It was also the, the first investment I did, actually. And uh, now they've successfully raised the Series A with two strategic investors, Renelit Solve. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. 
and that that makes me really happy and i'm i'm absolutely thrilled for the team because obviously you know we've been there from from early on it's really hard work and it's very satisfying when that happens we're also experiencing the same emotions with our admacom startups when they get their first investment rounds and it's it's so hard and especially if the startups are in chemistry material science right it's so much harder than in software and I'm also surprised to see that sometimes the funding rounds, um, like when they raise two, three million, it's sometimes so little compared to what software startups managed to raise in some of their initial um, funding. So how, how do you see that? Like, Does that make sense? Is it because investors are a bit more reluctant to go for difficult things they don't understand, such as chemistry? Or, or what's the explanation for that? First of all, the funding size tends to really depend geographically where you are. So obviously, if you're in the US or the UK, you tend to raise bigger rounds. If you're in mainland Europe, that's you're going to have smaller rounds. I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult for chemistry and material science startups to raise larger rounds, well, first of all, there's not many of them. Let's start with that. Uh, second of all, it's, you know, as an investor, you see a team and you see a business plan. And most of the material science chemistry, pure chemistry startups, we're not counting digital chemistry here, startups, they have a enormous a capex um, requirement, capital expenditure requirement, meaning that, you know, you look at the business plan and they go, well, we're going to make a pilot plant. And the pilot plant is going to cost, I don't know, 2 million euros. And after that, we need to do a larger demo plant. And that's going to cost, you know, 5 million euros. The, the problem is, is that because all this, this, these facilities are extremely expensive, and then there are not also not that many chemistry specialized investors. I mean, okay, further down the line, CVCs, the big guys, that's one thing. But early stage chemistry investors who go, okay, well, I'm still going to invest in this company, no, well knowing that further down the roadmap, they're going to need to raise a 5 million round, then maybe, maybe a 20 million round for their own production facility. I mean, that's a big decision you have to make with extremely high risk. It's funny you ask this because it's kind of in parallel with, there's a lot of parallels with pharma, actually. Pharma is also one of those business models that need a large amount of money to be raised. But what pharma has that chemistry doesn't have yet is that in pharma, you have very clear milestones, mm -hmm. preclinical, clinical, and then obviously exit afterwards well, hopefully exit afterwards, acquisition by a larger company. And you know that if you get to the developmental milestones, right, that are sort of already planned, then you can sell your company for a specific amount of money, or at least within a range, if it's in oncology, or if it's in autoimmune disease, you know, you, you know, more or less the range, if successful, if the preclinical and the clinical is successful, uh, then you get a certain amount of money. Right. In chemistry, it's still... This is very much dependent on which area, if you're doing coatings, if you're doing additives, you don't have a guarantee that your exit value is going to be high, despite the fact that you have to invest a lot of money. Right. So all of this becomes risks factors, which make it extremely difficult to actually invest in chemistry. And that also depends very much on the applications you choose, right? So you could have a material that could have applications across a wide range of industries. And depending on the direction you take at an early stage, or maybe not very early stage, but definitely in the initial phase of a startup, you kind of also decide what your market is, right? And then you also decide what your valuation might be. So how should how should scientists go about this? They have a material, they have an idea that it could be applied across five or six different industries. Again, they should they should do their market uh, diligence at first, right, and figure out where where they fit. But what's 
yeah, what's what's the best way for them to find their direction so that they avoid, you know, not existing in a couple of years? Difficult question. Feedback from the market. You need to talk to people. I mean, of course, you can go read reports, which industry, which application is the most attractive. But essentially, then you're doing it again. You have a, you have a solution and you need to find that killer application. And the only way you're going to find that killer application, other than sitting in front of and Googling, is most likely talking to people on the market. Because what people tell you and what's written are not always the same. And you, you will see that if if when the product market fit happens, by the way, we published article on that at Hatekev, because we see a lot of these cases, when that product market fit happens, it's like, you know, a light bulb going on and you will get people willing to pay for it. So if you have something and you're just getting kind of a lukewarm response, well, probably you're not, you're not there yet. And because we talked a lot about um, startups, I was curious to know, given all of your experience now and given your background as well in chemistry, if you were to start a company now, if you were to change your life again and say, okay, I'm going to become a startup founder, what would the startup be? Maybe you have to be very specific about it, but what area would you be in or what would you be doing? You know, that's an extremely difficult question um, because there's so many topics now and there's so many startups and so many things out there that, you know, I find especially fascinating. Um, just from a gut feeling, I guess I would go for, well, I know that the large unmet need is sustainability in plastics. So, you know, you have multi-layer plastics that are not recyclable, trying to make pack new types of packaging materials that are recyclable. Cellergy, the company you guys had uh, in the last intake was, you know, was something that I really liked uh, their solution because of that, that spin. Other than that, uh, new 3D printing types of technology is something I always go for because, well, I like 3D printing. So um, in this intake, ceraming with their new ceramic printing, that got me really excited. Some, something in that kind of direction. So maybe 3D printing a bioplastic. I don't know if that's actually possible. I just made that. I don't know. <laughs> that's cool. Okay, so let's see how many startups start after this episode. People start to go into bioplastics and ceramics. <laughs> you advise them to? Hopefully many. And on a more personal note, I'm curious to know, when you made this transition to the investor world, what motivated you to do that? And now that you have done that and you've been in this position for quite a while, what is the most exciting part of being an investor in chemistry? What motivated me? Well, I wanted, like, I really liked science. I still really, really like science. Uh, for those of you out there, I did atomic force microscopy. So um, that's basically a technique where you're working with, like, a, a reflective uh, needle, basically, and a laser. And you're in a sound, well, hopefully vibration-proof, soundproof room, and you're pulling single molecules apart. That was really cool, but I wanted to do something um it's a very lonely research basically because it's you the machine and the molecule in a soundproof room yeah <laughs> we, we we three had a wonderful relationship but um i i really wanted real people that 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 was actually my motivation to start looking for something else but i also wanted to do something still with science but uh i said well okay so maybe there are there are fields which combine sort of business and and science because i really did like going out and meeting people. I like negotiating. I like presenting. So I said, well, maybe I'll give this business thing a try. The true story is I missed a train actually from a job fair back and I ended up chit-chatting with a woman who happened to be working for the MBA program. And that's the only reason why I applied for it. But anyway, and I got in the program 
And I decided, well, that's pretty cool. That's uh, that's what I'm going to do instead of a postdoc. And how difficult was that transition? So you did the MBA and then once you graduated, was it relatively easy then to transition into this world or did you find it a bit tricky? So all the stars aligned. I applied for the position because at HCGF, they were looking for somebody with a chemical background who understood the chemical industry, who had also some business background and wanted to, and obviously a technical background as well. So I applied, um, I got the job. And um, yeah, I, I have to say, it's, I love my job because you said, what's the most exciting thing about your job? is that I get to see the newest and the best and the craziest and the most innovative ideas. I get to meet great people. I get to have, yeah, yeah you get what I mean. I get to have lively discussions with them. And nice. And on that topic, what's the craziest pitch that you've ever heard, if you can tell us? Oh, a craziest pitch. Crazy. <laughs> Did anybody pitch like getting to the moon faster? I don't know, some, some really ridiculous <laughs> concept. Well, I had actually a pitch... Um, well, I thought I found the idea actually quite creative. In Science for Life, I, I had a founder who kept the attention of people by throwing plastic balls around the room. Uh, that, that, that was cool. <laughs> That's definitely creative. Maybe we'll give that a try at our next uh, live event. <laughs> for now, we're doing most events online, so it's a little bit difficult to throw things at people, but maybe we find an app that does that. Well, thank you so much for answering all of my many, many questions. Is there anything that you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to tell the startups that are listening to us or hopefully other people, not just startups, are listening to us, our wider audience? Well, thank you for having me here and for listening uh, listening to me and listening to the podcast. Um, what I'd like to tell startups especially is, well, get feedback early. And the worst you can get is a no. Mm -hmm. It's much better to go out there and get critical feedback, even if it's negative or critical, to further improve your product earlier on than sitting on your on your invention and hoping and developing it until it's hundred percent. Because maybe hundred percent, you know, that's the point I said is it's not needed. Right. Maybe it's not necessary and you could have found out and saved yourself a lot of work and energy had you asked people. Exactly. That's very good advice. And hopefully all of our startups are listening to this. Thank you again for being with us today, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Startup the Science. If you like our show and want to know more about what we do, check out our website at enam.berlin. And don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time.